This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Imaginary Psychogeography. Elastic Vampires. Word Clusters. And Ion Kuliano. Hey, Ken, guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo? I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When typing it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it F-E-N-I-X. Uh, and, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Height. Hop aboard the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch Goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Heightian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western once upon a time in the north. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing spellcasters, Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters. Plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian. On Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014. As we move past the imaginary lines projected on the wall and the spinning of globes, we understand that perhaps we have entered the cartography hut, although this cartography hut is without air photo surveillance maps and the other impedimentia of future scientific cartography. Instead, we are entering the inner cartography hut. And Robin, what do you uh, got for us unrolled out on the big chart table? So... In an earlier episode, uh, in one of your, I think your London bookshelf, you recommended to all and sundry, and therefore also to me, the works of Ian Sinclair, who's a uh, pioneer, perhaps the uh, leading figure in the field of psychogeography. So, uh, uh, Ken, you know this field and Sinclair better than I do. I really enjoyed his book, Lights Out for the Territory. Uh, what is psychogeography? Okay, psychogeography is... I guess the sort of technical term would be the way that the geography and the observer of the geography interplay. And since the geography is not moving around, usually it's mostly the play on the, on the observer, the experience of the geography. As with so many things that sound awesome and are slippery when you try and get a hold of them, it was, uh, the term was invented by Guy Debord. Easily, my favorite uh, insane leftist of the, of the 20th century, if people are, are keeping track. But the, the basic, uh, as it is practiced, as opposed to as DeBoard defines it, it's basically the establishment of mental connections between a location and an observer. So, uh, and the sort of the impact of, of that location on the observer. And you can either have a purely personal psychogeography where it's like, uh, like, uh, like whenever Robin takes me around Toronto, occasionally there'll be, oh, this is where Valerie and I uh, had our first date, or this is where... I uh, met, you know, Michael Andachi and punched him in the arm or, or whatever it is. One of those incidents is fictionalized. One of those incidents is slightly fictionalized. It was not the arm. And some of the, the, the psychogeography can be personal. And as the number of observers with a shared connection to a specific point rises, then the effect rises up to sort of a cultural effect. And so you can have something like if you're walking past, you know, the Liberty Bell, pretty much everyone is going to have a response to the Liberty Bell. 
uh, because they they have some response to what it symbolizes, to America, to the revolution, all these sorts of things, and they all drive an emotional effect or an intellectual effect on, on the person who is standing at that point in geography. It's why we bother to go to London instead of just read about London. It's why we you know, go on, on walks around our own hometown that we know perfectly well. We're not looking for something new. We're experiencing the geography and its impact on us. And then there is a further argument that uh, people like Sinclair have taken half as play and half as serious is that the geography has an impact on you whether there is a personal connection or not. So you would go to, uh, say, Christchurch Spitalfields, and you would look at that church and you'd have this sort of sense of oppression and being stabbed by the steeple, and you might not know that you're basically a stone's throw from two out of the six Ripper murders. Uh, but that that point has a psychogeographic effect on you, and Alan Moore in From Hell, or uh, Ian Sinclair in Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings and, uh, and Blood Heat, would say that the reason that has a point is because that geography has an inherent meaning that is beyond the individual connotation. And th this, of course, is where Guy Debord would be flailing his arms and shouting that you've got it all wrong, which is exactly why it's the fun point to start from for me. Right. And so, for example, in uh, Lights Out for the Territory, Ian Sinclair and his photographer decide to cut this sort of V-shaped swath through London. And as he goes on this extended series of walking tours, whenever he runs into something that uh, relates to politics, aesthetics, particularly painting and poetry, crime, particularly the Cray Brothers era of London crime, mm -hmm. uh, the occult mythology, he will tie it all together for you and relate it to whatever place he's in so that the subliminal effect of being near these places becomes liminal when you read him explain it all to you. And you, uh, especially a city like London, which has, you know, a millennia of history to it, plus, 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 has so much going on that pretty well, you know, any random parking lot or Tesco's can turn out to have some sort of a amazing historical significance to it. Right. And so as you're experiencing these the, these walks, and it is much more effective and much better if you uh, engage in what uh, Debord called the derive, which is to let the geography define your walk, right? You're not doing it for business. You're not doing it because you're on your way to the bar. You're doing it because you are walking the geography and you are allowing the geography to have pride of place in, in your response to your environment, which if you think about your normal going around the city, it's not usually the case. You're usually thinking, well, I got to get to the, you know, bookstore. I got to get to the, you know, train station or whatever it is. And you're not saying, no, I'm literally walking past the spot where Jaime Weiss was gunned down and was taken to that flower shop across the street. You're not letting that moment get into you. And Debord says the derive, the, the psychogeographic uh, ritual experience is kind of crucial to it. And when I was in London and, uh, uh, a beloved Pilgrim publisher and I, Simon Rogers, were walking around in Whitechapel at night, looking at one or two of the of the of the Ripper sites. There is a difference to Whitechapel, even just between day and night walking around, and the difference is orders of magnitude from just reading about the sites, which obviously I'd been doing, you know, for years and years from the you know across the Atlantic. Right, and the whole idea of uh, the sort of wandering without an express purpose other than to wander, goes back to earlier generations of French avant-gardists who uh, 
they call themselves flaneurs, and the idea was just to uh, wander Paris, which is just as rich and fraught a city as London, aimlessly in search of connections. And the uh, Surrealists took that up, and the whole point was to find uh, not necessarily layers of history, but weird juxtapositions mm -hmm. that were uh, somehow more meaningful than everyday life. And in uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, uh, this is one of the ways that the surrealist PCs can move from the real Paris to the Paris of dreams. And there's a, a famous incident where uh, Breton gets very frustrated trying to uh, travel psychically, and uh, we <laughs> repurpose that in the, in the book into another demonstration of why he is unable to move through dreams. So having established <laughs> what psychogeography is... That's one of my favorite bits. Well, we, we love to salt in the ironies. Uh, yes. here. Before we jump right out, I, I'm reading the um, uh, little Wikipedia thing, and there's a revitalization institute in Toronto that is apparently psychogeographers. Robin, you love Toronto perhaps uh, even more than it deserves. Have you run across these guys? Do you know what they're up to? Wandering around and finding places that people had a really productive meeting or, you know, met the magical beaver that brought them the donuts or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> um, there is, uh, I think that's probably a writer named Sean McAuliffe. Is that name popping up on it your screen? It does not seem there? to be on my screen, but I would not doubt that Sean McAuliffe might be one of the key guys. There is a really great walking tour book of Toronto, and perhaps we will... Okay, I'm not getting it on my search that I'm conducting as I'm talking. So, uh, But yeah, there is a, definitely a, a movement here. And as you suggest, there's sort of a challenge in taking a city with a shorter history, as all North American cities do and you know Toronto is by no means the uh, youngest city in North America mm -hmm. by any means, but it's older than my city by like three years. Yeah, and if you you know if we take one of our English friends around a walking tour of uh, Toronto, go this is the first pub to ever open in Toronto. It opened in 1847, and then James Wallace will go. The wiring in my house is older than 1847. Exactly, right. But this brings us to the idea of building and creating a fictional psychogeography, and this is where the cartography angle is. So I was thinking that we would, for the remainder of this segment, kick around ideas for taking your fictional imaginary city, whether it's in a fantasy world or a science fiction universe or a, an alternate horror world where everything has changed and it's not just a gloss on our own world, and how to world build by finding psychogeographic connections. So the first step, I guess, would be to create that list of all of the things, the categories that can make a spot numinous. And again, here's where you can uh, crib from Ian Sinclair, who is interested in all those things that I uh, listed earlier, from uh, politics to crime to tabloid events to the occult and the supernatural. So how can would you go about, let's say that you've created your map of your fantasy city, and at this point you've uh, kind of worked out all the basic sensible things, and it's a typical role-playing fantasy city, and you've established that it's impossibly old, way older than real historical cities are. So how would you then pick a spot on a map and start building in the psychogeographic details that then tell you about your world and allow also the player characters, when they explore the map, to encounter these things that make the world seem real and deep, even though you just made it up. I think I would I would take a two prong I would take a two prong horned antelope a approach. Two prong horned antelope. I would take two antelopes, sacrifice one to um, uh, Hermes, god of uh, city planning, and um, uh, feed it to the other antelope. Now, I would take a an approach 
where I combine, definitely you want a random table for this. You want to list all the things, like you say, that might make something numinous, you know, that it's reputed to be haunted, that uh, a great poet went mad writing about this square, that there's been a flower market here, but it was closed down by, you know, a mad emperor for reasons no one knows. Just just free associate, write a bunch of different things, or have a bunch of different categories, you know, ghosts, serial killing, demon haunting, you know, and in a fantasy world, it can be like crazy things. This is where that angel died, you know, whatever it is. And you'd make a bunch of random things, and the randomness is important for exactly that sort of Guy Debord, surrealist derivé, meaning that you can't just be mapping your ley line down and saying, well, there you go, I'm done, because that violates sort of the the connection-making part of psychogeography. And then the other half of that, and maybe it wouldn't be as long a list, or maybe it would be, is things that you're going to introduce into the game already as big bads or major concerns. So if you know pretty much that in your fantasy world, there's going to be a big contest, that the big contest in the world is between the elf gods, who are all about trees and growth and making everything at one with nature, and the uh, dragon gods, which are all about metal and gold and fire and burning everything out into a beautiful sculpture. And so you want to come up with things in your big city that resonate either with one or the other of these cosmic forces, so that when you're mentioning something, it is going to have some relevance to the game as the players are experiencing it. Because otherwise, it's going to come out pretty much the same as if you had any other sort of travelogue where you're like, oh, and this is the tavern where there is tasty smoked meat. And they're like, great, I'm in a game. It doesn't matter to me. I, I need to know what's going on with these, you know, elves. And so what you would rather say is this is where an elven princess appeared to someone covered in, bo- in boiling gold and then vanished and no one knows why. And she just, you know, was there. And so they stopped building buildings there. That's why there's a big circle there with that uh, with that pit in it or whatever. And so you've established a connection, not just between the city and the historical event in the city, but between a city and the game as the players are attempting to put together and, and the, the sort of the storyline that you know is going to involve them. And you can also do that with player hooks. So if a player is a cleric of, of Task the Cannibal God, you can say, this is where Task's great follower ate all of the kobolds that had attempted to invade the city from below and became a great hero. And that's why, you know, this sewer grate is so important or something like that, right? Right. And you mentioned one of the sort of key issues with information in any uh, role-playing game, especially information about setting, which is that it can be exposition that doesn't pay off, right? That it's just a bunch of information that doesn't necessarily connect to what the players are doing or what the storyline is. So one way to deal with that is you could mark your map with your, you know, let's say you've got your seven categories of things that are interesting to you at every location and you could create symbols for them. So you could have a mask could represent crime and a balance could represent politics and, uh, you know, you could have a starburst for the occult or whatever it is. And then you could just mark on your map ahead of time, what the categories of things are at the different locations. And you want probably, you know, two categories that overlap so that this is not just a site where something political happened. It's also a site where something magical or criminal happened, because that's where you get the intersections that create the crazy connections and layers of meaning that you get in a work of psychogeography. And so if you just have the categories and then once the players go to a place, 
you can either think up something that relates to one of the plot lines that falls into one of those categories. So you see the crime symbol and they're investigating a series of murders. You can, well, this is a site of a murder from 20 years ago that was never solved. Or 200 years that, ago if it's a right, fantasy exactly. And so you are then improvising with preparation the setting so that it has that appearance of depth and so that these psychogeographic details that you pull out as they move through the map relate to what's going on rather than just being, oh yeah, here's a bit of trivia that makes the world seem real, which is important in some cases, but becomes oppressive if that's all they're getting. Another thing that you can do is you can let the map start to dictate to you, which is stupid fun if you're doing it in a real city. I did that initially with a, a Call of Cthulhu game I was running set in Los Angeles, and I'm not from Los Angeles, I'd been there a bunch of times, but I was I was deliberately, you know, started drawing ley lines and things like that that were connecting one or two arbitrary points, and then everywhere along the line automatically becomes more significant in the game. And you can do that with your fantasy city. You can just decide, okay, where are all the magician's guilds? That's where the ley line is. Zip! And so now everything along that line is also more magically than other places in the city. Or you take a, a compass and you draw a circle around all the major temples, you know, of the same ver of the same width, or maybe the city guardian temple is at double width. And then where those circles overlap is going to be a numinous spot where the deities are sort of, you know, having to have a truce. And they're like, well, I don't know. And when you get a fun overlap, like, oh, the goddess of grain is overlapping with the god of blacksmiths. And you're like, okay, what happens in the part of the city where grain and blacksmiths are both equally powerful? And then if a ley line zoops through that, now you're like, okay, magic grain blacksmiths. What's what's going on here? There's Is there a you know, a, a, a metal tree that gives off metal fruit once every 500 years. What kind of thing happens when all of those things are, are on your city? And once you start drawing lines and circles and, you know, patterns in your map, you'll start to see that they overlap and they cross and they create geometries underneath your sort of city grid that let you then know in the game, oh, the play of this fight is happening in a place where the sun god is powerful and, and you know, if you combine it with your other map that you're talking about, oh, and I'm also next to a, a place where um, there was a great political event happening. Okay, I'm going to just say the paladin, you feel because you're in this block, you feel the spirit of uh, the great noble who um, uh, raised up this particular city from the, um, from, from the uh, uh, you know, orcs or something. You feel his spirit enter you and, and speak to you and inspire you. And in exchange for a plus two in this battle, all you've got to do is make sure that his statue gets uh, repaired with a little bit of your money. And it's not going to cost them a ton of money. It's not, you know, their whole reward. But it's a thing that connects the paladin to the city. It, can, it gives the paladin a reason for having, you know, for now for caring about the city. Because, hey, right. maybe I can get another plus two somewhere. And if there's an anti-paladin who's been offered a plus two to make sure the statue gets destroyed, there's exactly. your plotline for and the next it, week. Then that's the thing. that once, once you start involving the players in the city, you can have the natural response happen. That is, you know, either the natural response of the city is, you know, nicer to him because the paladin's actually paying for civic improvement, or the sort of paranatural response of that statue is kept rusted for a reason, paladin. You meddle in things you do not understand. And so 
There's um, uh, you can you can have any number of uh, of great story hooks, and it can just be a matter of where the paladin's descendants are like, oh look at that, or the the statue's guy's descendants are you know maybe they've fallen on hard times and they now look on the paladin as a protector and and friend of their house, even though all the guy did was give him a plus two. There's nothing more fun than giving a player a favor and then tying them into the setting that way because you didn't hose them, they volunteered for it, really. You can also uh, even go one step further and make psychogeographic inquiry the premise of the campaign. You could, for example, have a campaign which is set in a modern, perhaps fictional, perhaps real, uh, sort of magic realist world or just mundane world, and the uh, object of the game is that the players are compiling a work of psychogeography, you know, and you could give it a modern twist by saying that they're working on an iPad app that uh, would use location services where you would go to any spot in the map in the city as a user of this app and hit the, the button and it would bring up all of these historical connections for you, which uh, sounds like a cool idea for an actual product now that I think of it. Yes, <laughs> if only. <laughs> but, uh, yes, but uh, we can't afford the development fees on that, so uh, we're just going to make that the premise of our uh, game and that as the uh, characters uh, assemble all the psychogeographic information and impressions, what they don't realize at first is that, in fact, they are bringing back the magical, mythological, fantastic version of this city that used to exist until the, the MacGuffin thing uh, changed everything and they are unwinding that. And so that could be a whole uh, sort of an, I guess, probably an unknown armies uh, campaign or uh, another gumshoe game uh, too uncommercial to print. <laughs> the um, uh, it, it basically was my unknown armies ca game in a lot of ways. I think that if I'm running a game that's set in an actual city, my players sort of expect that there's going to be a psychogeographic element to it already, because that's, to me, the whole fun of playing in a, in a, in a real city, is that uh, you get to then play with all the real history and all the real, you know, serial killing and, and murders and ghosts and politics and art and poets that happen in real cities. And so, yeah, I, I think that making the game about the psychogeography is... It, 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 you know, people who've, who who played in it, certainly in that Call of Cthulhu game or in my Unknown Armies game in Chicago are like, and that would be different from our normal games. How exactly? Uh, right. Well, I think we've uh, given people uh, lots of ideas for their uh, psychogeographic explorations and can therefore head out on our own circuitous route to the next segment. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, and the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... 
All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-p08. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash the letter P, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> The comforting rattle of D12s and the aroma of already chewed Doritos tell us that we have joined the gaming hut already in progress. And as That's we quite an aroma, yes. And as we uh, our, our feet luxuriate in the green shag carpet, and as we experience the splendor of the wood paneling surrounding us, we are here to contemplate a uh, dread and, and gothic yet literary question, which is about the elasticity of the vampire myth. Ken for uh, Phoenix Magazine, you wrote an article, and Phoenix, of course, is our uh, sponsor and still have their Indiegogo campaign in progress. You wrote an article about uh, the golden vampires of El Dorado, and this uh, brings to mind sort of the whole broader question of the elasticity of the vampire myth, of all of the sort of major monster types. Uh, it seems to me that the vampire is the one that can stretch the furthest and uh, be mutated and altered and switched around everything from, you know, I am legend style quasi zombies to the brooding romance of uh, the Twilight series. Do you think that, first of all, that this is true, that the vampire is the most malleable of the iconic monster types? I don't know that it is the most malleable, but it is certainly the one that has been most malled. Um, the Vampire really caught a hold of the European and Western European imagination at a point where, you know, again, where coincidentally they were sort of establishing the rules for the novel where the Gothic was being invented literally at the same time as people are reading in their, in their broadsheets about the vampire panic in, um, uh, Austria Hungary. And I think that if, you know, in 17, you know, 50, there had been instead a werewolf panic like there was in France in the 1590s, we might have seen the werewolf you know, be the guy instead of the vampire. I don't Does know. Does that mean then that the, the werewolf looms larger in the French imagination and that the French people are as interested in werewolves as uh, Anglos are in vampires? I, no, the French the French um, have made a, a real run at red werewolves. Obviously, the closest thing there is to a great werewolf novel is Werewolf of Paris. But that, sadly, is more about a vampire because it's not about a werewolf. It's just about a guy who's got an obsession to eat dead people. So he's more vampire-y than he is werewolfy. So good try, France. No, the French are very, very fond of the vampires, and I think that Anglo uh, vampire authors are even fonder of the French being fond of vampires, and so there's sort of a cycle of, of call and response there. But 
The other great thing that the vampire has going for it is that it is the sort of thing that you can pick out of a lot of other cultures' myth pattern in a way that's harder to do with some of our more characteristic monsters in, in Western culture and harder to do with the characteristic monsters of other cultures. Like, for example, genies that we've uh, talked about how much we love them. It's kind of harder to find a genie. And we dream of them, in fact. We dream, in fact, uh, at least some of them. Barbara Eden inclusive. There's a. It's harder to pick out a, a proper genie from something else. That's really very, very localized. And similarly, there are, are other uh, things that are you know harder to to find exactly. Mummies are not as common, although they're commoner than people think they are. Werewolves, qua werewolves, our werewolf myth. There's a lot of skin changers, but they don't behave even remotely like werewolves do. The the number of of proper bestial early modern skin switching serial killers that's very very limited in the in the rest of the world most of their skin changers are basically like the selkie in in irish myth where they change the skin either to teach a husband a lesson or just because people sit around and think boy if i were an otter i wouldn't have to do this stupid work so not nearly so devoury yeah right and so the the vampire though there there seems to be a lot of those sorts of things and even if they're not drinking blood they're drinking something it's a measurable drinkingness to it that you can't it's a lot closer for example to the gaki is uh although it's not the vampire in the in the same way that good old dracula is a vampire but it's a spirit probably connected with the dead it it feeds upon uh, the living and you can say all right that's so close to vampire that we can just push it that little way over and again as western culture has sort of taken over the rest of the world the rest of the world takes their vampire myth and then makes western vampire movies with their flavor on it so if you look at uh, Philippine movies about vampires, they have some of the Philippine qualities of the Aswang, which is a vampire, uh, sort of a, a flying monster that uh, usually just sits on the roof of your house and drinks your blood from far away, but they've tied that into Western vampire imagery, so they are westernizing their vampires even further. But yeah, I think that both because of his historical accident, like I talked about, and because it really is a good, strong, central story... I think vampires work really, really well. Ghosts are probably the only thing that could give it a run for its money at this point. Right. And I think that the essential quality that makes them so fascinating to people and thus inspires all of these different transformations and, uh, and alterations is the combination of sex and death. And uh, you've got those two things that are very powerful. It's the vampire is traditionally an alluring creature but it's one that at least in the initial version um, means you no good that is here to steal your women uh, and uh, seduce them away and therefore it's also a monster that you interact with before you fight it so it has a lot more personality uh, than you know your zombie and it's interesting that you know the Karloff mummy is basically a reskinned uh, version of Dracula in that mm -hmm. he you see him in his non mummy form and he comes to seduce uh, a uh, a good woman and he's uh, he's all hypnotizing and so even the the that first conception of the mummy is a a reconfigured vampire and so is that global connection between all of these various entities that makes them vampires is this something that you see from place to place to place that they all have the Eros as well as the Thanatos? I think that there's aspects of the Eros, but I think that you overstate the case when you say that vampires are always alluring. Vampires are more often than not, I, and always is always tricky with vampires because they don't always even drink blood or always be dead. And if you asked what a vampire was, you'd say dead guy who drinks blood. But the 
earliest vampires in Serbia, the ones that sort of started uh, us on our exciting trip, they were lustful and lecherous, and the real worry was that they were going to come back and basically uh, rape the living and then drink their blood, and that that was going to be something that they were doing. And there was a combination of arrows, but it was not a sort of even a Dracula date rapey type rape. It was, you know, just full-on corpse attacking you type uh, stuff. And so a lot of the vampires that you see in, in other cultures, um, like the Vitala, is it's basically it's a corpse spirit that can, be, can possess a corpse or it can possess a bat. And its seduction is not necessarily that it's a sexy corpse or even a sexy bat. Its seduction is to people who want to go deal with it because that personal dealing is still very strong. And I think that's one of the big things that vampires have is that they deal with it for magic because it knows the secrets of the dead. And so it can... It, it, it can spill sorcery, and so you want to go to the Vitala and be fed that. But then, certainly, as the Vitala starts showing up in later works in uh, and by more westernized authors, obviously Richard Burton uh, translates a uh, a story about a, a Vitala that, because it's Richard Burton, suddenly there's a sex interest in it. And, and so you can sort of see that begin to twist toward uh, the Western vampire, like I was talking about the modern you know, Christopher Lee and, and um, uh, Bella Lugosi have, have already done with, with other vampires. But uh, sex is, is very common uh, in, in vampire stories, and the personal connection, even if it's not an explicitly sexual one, is also more common in vampire stories than it is in your general sort of run of monster stories. Uh, in ghoul stories, there's the story where the ghoul takes the shape of a beautiful woman, and then you go around the side of the sand dune, and then you're never seen again. So there's that aspect to it. But plenty of other ghoul stories are just, you hear a voice, you go off the path, you get eaten, or, or something like that. There's not a real personal connection between you and the ghoul. And I think certainly that that uh, is still why it fascinates uh, Western audiences, and why you know vampires really come into their own in role-playing with Vampire the Masquerade, which gives them their sexy back, that you become... Although they are in the White Wolf mythology, sort of uh, strangely sexless, mm -hmm. they have all sorts of sex appeal, but nothing to no outlet for that other than biting people and being engaged in Machiavellian politics. Um, but it certainly, you know, they become to various degrees romantic antiheroes rather than creatures in the dungeon who you fight and who have uh, level drain in early right. editions. Yeah, and that of course is is White Wolf sort of following along in the path of vampire fiction very much uh, obviously post Anne Rice uh, the notion of the vampire as the as explicitly as the gothic hero is something that uh, although it's been done before Rice it's been done <laughs> she did it more successfully and more I guess relevantly to the kids today than you know no one was going to go back and dig out uh, Polidori's novel and say Count Ruthven that's a guy that I want to you know write a role playing game around. So, uh, when you took your vampires to El Dorado, uh, how did you reconfigure this uh, very reconfigurable myth? But the, with El Dorado, um, I wanted to both play vampire games and El Dorado games, because that's the fun of a mashup, is to sort of see what both pieces do to each other. So, one of them was a, a 17th century sort of piratey, you know, land at the edge of the map type treatment, where the vampires are just sort of the center of a, of a low fantasy setting because there's a, um, uh, there's a vampire kingdom in the, in the El Dorado because one of the parts of the El Dorado myth is that there's a human sacrifice in the lake that uh, the king walks into the lake all covered with the gold and then in some stories he walks back up out and others he doesn't so much walk back up out. And the Chibcha, of course, 
practiced uh, ritual bloodletting and ceremonial human sacrifice like a lot of cultures in uh, Mesoamerica did because they were all being influenced by their you know, version of the West, which was the Mayans and uh, the proto-Mayans. So you can just treat the vampires as the center of a dark land at the edge of the map, as, as sort of a fantasy kingdom uh, uh, in your in your pirate setting. I did another one where the vampires were the sort of uh, very uh, post-Marxist uh, vampires, in which the vampires represent industry, and they're building their wonderful steampunk constructions, but the secret of the elixir, the alchemical elixir that powers their their, their engines, is blood. And so you literally are building this steampunk revolution on the blood of the working class. And since steampunk works really, really well when you heighten those class conflicts and those class contradictions, and since the notion of a technically advanced country where there's no business being a technically advanced country is such an old steampunk story element, a trope, that it goes back before steampunk, that Jules Verne is doing it. So I wanted to do that with a a steampunk kingdom in Colombia or Venezuela that could then also be sort of a class structure thing there with uh, the, the 1920s, 1930s uh, El Dorado, which is sort of Lost Cities, Indiana Jones thing. It's just that the vampire becomes sort of the secret at the center of the of the map. It's the thing underneath the, literally the X on the map. And that's why individual explorers are not to be trusted is because they go out there and they come back and they say, oh yeah, there's a giant city there full of jade idols and, and, and gold bars. Oh, I didn't take any with me because my pants were full and I've got to die now. And then that's a lure, like the, you know, lure at the end of the anglerfish's nose that draws particularly uh, hot-blooded adventurers into the jungle to be eaten by a lazy and torpid vampire. And then the last one, the sort of the, the postmodern or modern-day vampire game, is that there is a, a mutant plant that was created at the bottom of this uh, lake in Venezuela where, or Guiana, where people would go in and they would have all these human sacrifices. And so this organism, you know, became dependent on human blood and it developed a sort of a, um, uh, a freaky, uh, fog of intelligence. And it draws all of these sort of biotech explorers and people are coming into patent. All the plants in the jungle are all coming in and they're bringing the samples back out to Atlanta and back out to sort of the centers of biotech and, and medical research. And that the vampire fungus or the vampire infection is now spreading over the world because of this scientific urge to understand. And so it's the same sort of Faust myth, but you had the vampires at the center of it. But instead of a specific, you know, vampire that's the bad guy, it's vampirism that is the bad guy. It's a a disease, not 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 an antagonist. And then you can have your antagonist be people who are infected or not. So by using the vampire as a scientific metaphor and as a political class structure metaphor, have you taken the Eros out of it in this instance? Well, I think in both cases, the Eros, um, you know, if you're Freud, you say you can't take the Eros out of anything. The Eros is always there. So you say that it's sublimated, right? That the urge to find scientific truth or, or medical research is the, um, uh, is the urge and that, the, that that is what's drawing you in. That you, if you, certainly if you want to tell a story with this vampire fungus, you will need it to have infected, you know, some you know, uh, important people in the, you know, say in the CDC or in some global pharmaceutical company, and those guys or, or women become your, um, uh, your antagonists and your interactions with them as you begin to sense that there's something inhuman sort of festering at the core of their, of their bone marrow is where you start to s- get that alienation from the human that is the other part of the vampire. Certainly, if all it is is just, um, we're infected by vampire virus, Roll against medicine. That that game lacks a certain drama to it. 
if, if you have a human, either a human who is spreading it like uh, Paul Reiser and aliens just because they're a greedy idiot, or they're spreading it because they've been infected, which is way more interesting, then that's where you're, you, that Eros, uh, in the sense of an interacting with a possible sexual partner, comes as opposed to the Eros, which is just the drive and the greed which is uh, sort of a, a proto-Eros or pre-Eros uh, motivation. So that's a sort of bringing the Cronenbergy body horror style of Eros into your vampires. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, Eros is much bigger than just, you know, finding a, an attractive uh, member of, of your preferred gender and going after it. I mean, Eros infuses, uh, and certainly if it, if, it, if it wasn't supposed to, it, it certainly does in the modern era, it infuses every kind of human interaction. And that's another thing, obviously, that Cronenberg talks about when he has movies in which people are, you know, sexually aroused by being in car crashes, and you're like, that doesn't sound like a thing, but what the hell, everything's a thing. And now that the, the that sort of weird liminal fringy experience becomes part of the frisson and part of the horror, as he's also talking about a fundamental human drive. Right, and uh, so to speak. And uh, <laughs> and also, know. you know, it's got that Eros uh, Thanatos uh, thing uh, going for it. Well, this is a, a topic that I'm sure we'll... Uh, keep coming back to uh, since it's so central to so much of the stuff uh, we talk about. But now I think it's time to talk about some different stuff. If you're like many gamers, and only you know if you are, you dig not only D20s and formless entities, but also open source creativity and metal music. Combine those passions by opening your ear holes to the thunder of the Open Metal Cast podcast with horse throwing host. Craig Maloney. It's got trad metal. Death metal. Technical metal. Black metal. Instrumental metal. Battle metal. Club metal. Precambrian metal. What? What's Precambrian metal? I don't know. I just made that one up. But uh, shouldn't that be a metal? It absolutely should. And when someone invents it, the open metal cast will have it. Whether you need your metal to write by, as soundtrack music for your Viking raid, or just to drown out the pesky squirrels in your head, open source your listening needs with the Open Metal Cast podcast. Available wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. The chutter of the IBM Selectric keyboard mysteriously still chuttering despite it being 2014, and the smell of delicious aged bourbon, which is appropriate in all eras, tell us we have entered the magical office of how to write good. And Robin, you push back your fedora and set down your gun and have offered unto us a crucial good writing howness of what? So I thought we'd talk about word clusters, and this is a, a style issue that you will have to deal with uh, in different ways, whether you're writing role-playing prose or fictional prose. It becomes a different issue when you are writing uh, dialogue for dramatic forms. But it is the having the same word too close together in a way that you did not intend. And it is one of the most difficult things to catch yourself doing for a couple of reasons. One, because every writer has certain go-to words that they over-rely on, and you have to sort of train yourself to spot them without driving yourself crazy and uh, paralyzing yourself. Um, so it's, word clusters are definitely something to think about, not during the initial drafting phase, although, you know, if you spot one, you might want to stop and uh, get it out there. But it's really a, a proofing issue when you're reviewing your text, because I've certainly, while writing fiction, had a lot of days where I went down stupid rabbit holes trying to avoid having the same word pop up too closely together. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're in that initial flow state, the creative state, 
uh, you can really hang yourself up if you think about this too much. And there are certainly different tastes as to the extent to which you should repeat certain words. And if you're not careful, you can just drive yourself uh, crazy in general. So, for example, I remember once reading a piece by a writer, I think it was of legal-oriented crime fiction, who was so obsessive about this that he it took him out of a novel if anyone referred to the tone of someone's voice twice in the same 90,000 to 100,000 word novel. <laughs> and I think that's crazy talk. That can drive yeah. you uh, nuts. And being over-concerned with word clusters can really harm the simplicity of your expression and is in some ways also a um, matter of writing it in the English language because the English language, of course, is uh, three different Indo-European languages which separated and then all kind of recombined by a series of conquests. And so we have way more synonyms uh, than you would find if you're writing in French or Spanish or whatever. And so consequently, when you read French or, or Spanish literature and translation, you see there's usually a greater simplicity of expression and you're not noticing that, you know, that you're, they aren't using a zillion different synonyms for things all the time. But that said, uh, sometimes if you, you will run into a passage where there's a repetition that's not a musical repetition, that's not a repetition for effect, but is basically an editorial oversight. For example, there's something at the very end of Jack Vance's The Grey Prince, uh, this is the very last paragraph of the book, but it's not spoilery because it's a very sort of denouement-y kind of uh, sentence. So I'm not going to ruin this lesser Jack Vance novel for you if you read it. And he's uh, he's gone now. He wouldn't have listened to the podcast anyway. And this is more of an editing error. This is something that the editor should have caught, not something that you can blame Vance for. But the paragraph is, The three strolled along Kiranotis Avenue toward the Seascape Hotel. A tall mesh fence separated the road from the swamp, and a gap in the foliage afforded a view across the swamp, down to the slow water of the Viridian River. And the repetition of the word swamp in that sentence doesn't quite rise to the level of parallelism. It seems like something that should have been caught and fix. And so when you're reviewing your work, you want to really make sure that if you're using the same word, even a very simple, because there's all sorts of ways that you could re reconfigure that sentence so that it would uh, flow better and not hit you with that slightly off tone uh, repetition. Ken, are there uh, words in your own work that you have learned to uh, look out for, or are there words in the work of your favorite authors that sort of clonk you over the head when you uh, see them either uh, too often or too close together? I, I don't know that there, it gets to the point of an individual word with uh, my favorite authors. I mean, obviously, given that one of my favorite authors is Lovecraft, all of our listeners are jumping up and down and holding their hands up and saying, ooh, ooh, call on me. But if you do a... <laughs> If you do sort of a word cloud study of any given Lovecraft word, I mean, the word, you know, squamous or eldritch or fetid or whatever, we think of it as a word that shows up all the time, but it shows up once in each story or it shows up um, uh, maybe once at the beginning and once at the end. It's not as as god awful as people make it sound like. And I think that's one of the dangers of uh, looking at sort of the 20th, late 20th century, early 21st century sort of etiolated lean prose as an ideal is that whenever someone does use a colorful word, it is going to stick out. And so if you, you don't have to look at Lovecraft. You can go back at any uh, late 19th, early 20th century author, and you can see that their prose, 
once you read enough of it, you start seeing, you know, things like the word fuse in, um, uh, in, in Edgar Rice Burroughs, right? Everyone's always got fuse. And so, on the one hand, we now only see the word fuse if that, it's that's in... T-H-E-W-S. We only see that word... I was fuse for a minute. You were confused, was, were you? Yes. We, we only see that word in, in Burroughs or Robert E. Howard or people who are writing you know, sort of ironically in that, in, in, as a nod to that, to that genre. And so it always throws us out. It's like reading a technical term now. And so I think that that's one of the dangers is that even if you look at your own writing and you say, well, I only use the word sesquipedalian once. I don't see a problem with that. The reader is going to just like fixate on that. And if you've used it in every one of your stories, it's going to seem like a word cluster across your body of work, even if that's maybe an unfair criticism in the moment. I'll give you an example from television the writers for the show Elementary are in love with the word reach out as a synonym for call or involve or get in touch with or anything that normal human beings ever say. Right, and, and so, that probably started in NYPD Blue, actually. It, it, may, it may have been, because it is now spread. The cancer has spread to Justified, so I don't know what I have to do now. I have to burn it out with fire. But it, It's also just a cliche thing people really say. Well, I don't know that people... I mean, I would, I would, I'm sure some people say it, but I would hope against hope that Sherlock Holmes and or uh, federal marshals in Kentucky don't say it very often. It's, it's a creeping <laughs> office jargonism, I think it's become now, and that's really uh, a danger sign because that, that's going to date really quickly. Mm -hmm. And you also want to make sure, this is sort of a separate topic, but I guess we flowed into it. Um, <laughs> you want to make we sure that... into it. Yes. Uh, you want to make sure that when you're using commonplace expressions, A, don't use commonplace expressions, <laughs> B, uh, especially don't use them out of period. That's one of the things that I find uh, most jarring when uh, a character on, you know, Mad Men or Downton Abbey or whatever sort of period show uses a thing that people might have said back then, but they say all the time now. Mm -hmm. And uh, you want to, you know, watch out for anachronistic uh, phrases as well. Yeah. I think my word cluster, and, I, and again, writing nonfiction as much as I do, I think it makes it sort of more forgivable if I'm using the word swamp twice because people are saying, well, it's about a swamp. I guess we really don't have a choice, even though I right. could have more felicitously have said marsh or wetland or something or just, you know, sheen and let people know that it's the sheen of the swamp by the context. Yeah, but so I, swamp is just a simple, ordinary noun. You don't want to synonymize it so much as just minimize the, the use of it. And so the... The, the more common and straightforward the word, the less noticeable it is when you use it in short succession. If you're writing a fight scene, you're just going to have to use the word sword a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's fine. Nobody's going to notice or, or care. But you don't want to use sword twice in the same sentence unless you're deliberately using a parallel structure. But again, I mean, you can look at people who write really good fight scenes um, and people in English. Obviously, Dumas probably only has the two options, poor guy. But if you read, you know, a, a Edgar Rice Burroughs or a Robert E. Howard, when they're really paying attention and they're writing that fight scene, you can see that they use blade and steel and sword and edge and all kinds of other terms. And you read that, that uh, fight scene and it comes alive because they've avoided the word cluster there that they might unconsciously fall back into when they're describing, you know, a city or a thing that they don't really care about as much. Right. Swords are an interesting example because perhaps because we need to write a lot of fight scenes <laughs> in uh, English literature, there actually are a lot of great vivid uh, synonyms for those. But uh, swamp, you run out sooner. Yeah. But with, um, uh, with my writing, I find that one of the things that I have to, I mean, it's actually physical effort for me not to do this when I'm writing is to avoid what I call the, the, the Tim Powers rule of three, where rather than explain something, 
you give three examples of it and you move on and let the reader interpolate what those three things have in common. Or, or if I'm trying to sort of get a, a sense of the breadth of something, you'd say everything from cabbages to zircons to um, uh, ermines comes into the port of blah, blah, right? And once, that's fine. But as I go back over my stuff, I realize that I go to the three examples of a thing so often that I'm I'm amazed that I have not been teased about it yet by other writers. Right, and, and that's not a, a word cluster; it's a structure cluster. But right. it's also a, goes to the general theme of you know things t- tricks that you rely on uh, too often. And and again, I, I suspect that if someone notices it in my writing, and and perhaps someone already has, and now everyone oh, well, will now they will lot, now they will that it's going to sort of start showing up in bold letters, uh, and I'm not going to be able to get away with it as much. But on the other hand, it's really helpful. Right, and it also depends on the type of writing that you're doing. So in even just in terms of role-playing text, if you're writing setting material, that's closer to uh, traditional prose insofar as you're kind of, uh, in this instance, you're writing an imaginary travelogue. Mm-hmm. But for rules text or technical text, I think you have a lot more leeway uh, to repeat things. And sometimes it's it's a good thing to repeat things, oh, yeah, for example, because there are certain points that you want to hammer home. Uh, often during playtest, you will get the response, well, I, I didn't see anything in the rules about this. It's like, well, that's because I only said it twice. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is so important, I need to say it six times, uh, which is something you would normally try to avoid even in a, a technical manual for a toaster. So, for example, in the uh, drama system rules that appear in Hill Folk, it uses the words vivid description mm-hmm. again and again and again, and it's not an accidental overuse of that term. It is me using the term again and again and again in an attempt to nail that concept home and make clear that here's all the rules bits, but you then need to bring it to life. And that by finding a different synonym for vivid each time, uh, of which there are not that many, I looked it up. And also, uh, you know, that would then fail the purpose of repetition. And so it's always uh, fine to repeat things on purpose when you know why you're doing it for the musicality of it, right? If you are writing David Mamet style dialogue, that's Mm -hmm. full of repetition. And sometimes you want to add repetition to uh, dialogue just to make it seem real. Because if you listen to the way that real people talk, they repeat themselves a lot. And part of that is because you kind of, in real life, everyday speech, you need people to repeat things in order to understand them. And even going, um, in the middle of a sentence, it turns out, is not only a device that allows the speaker to pause and collect their thoughts, but it's a subliminal signal to the listener that enables them to process the information better. Yeah, hitting pause on the recording so you can transcribe it. Right. But we, of course, expect a different standard of language from uh, prose on the the written page. And one thing to look out for when you're eliminating word clusters is that you don't introduce more word clusters (laughs) as you're editing, because if you spot one sentence in your text that seems problematic to you, so you fix it so that it's more musical, you may miss the fact, you're highly likely to miss the fact, that three paragraphs down, you already used one of the key sort of standout words. You know, it's a word that crosses that taste line wherever you choose to put it as to a word that you can repeat a lot and a word that you can't. And that's something that you're going to miss and you need your proofreader or your copy editor to to find for you because eventually with any piece of writing, there's a point where you can't see anything anymore. Uh, But one way, as you suggested earlier, to get around that is there are various online tools that you can now use to 
uh, tally the number of appearances of uh, words in a story or a chapter or a novel. Um, and you can use those. And there are certain words you will look at them. Okay, that's the name of a character. That should definitely appear a ton of times. And there's a simple commonplace words and nouns. And it's like, oh, but here's Gollumafri. So <laughs> I only get one of those. That big. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's another example that occurred to me when you were talking, um, Harry Turtledove. And again, Turtledove is one of those authors that in an individual short story, he's, he's terrific. He's a great craftsman and you can't take anything away from him. And in some of his shorter or perhaps earlier or perhaps more rigorously edited novels, it isn't as big a problem. But I remember reading his standalone novel, Ruled Britannia, which is about uh, Shakespeare writing a play under Spanish occupation. And I think saliva may have flooded into poor Shakespeare's mouth more often in that novel than it did ever in real life. <laughs> yes. Because it's, it's how Turtledove sort of automatically begins a little, a nice little, and, a, and I want to say that this is a good thing because he talks about what Shakespeare is eating and he talks about what he's smelling and he, he's giving you a sensory picture of, of, of London in the novel. But since it is always beginning with saliva flooding someone's mouth, First of all, that's just unappetizing. I don't yes. care how good the meat pie <laughs> smells. And second of all, it's really noticeable. And, you know, in one story, okay, well, saliva will flood your mouth. That happens. But m more than once in a novel or even more than once in a series of novels. It's too potent an image. It's not like referring to a character's tone of voice. It's, right, yeah. Um, and in the works of Robert Silverberg, for example, you will notice uh, what type of breasts he likes because uh, every <laughs> well, every heroine has... There is a there is a period of science fiction from about, say, 1955 to about 19... One would hope one has closed it in, say, the the, the 90s when the, 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 the character's breasts become far more important than the hyperdrives or anything else going on in the story. Yes, that was an important source of learning to me as a young man growing up in the mid-70s, but <laughs> as, as a writer, yes. you might want to uh, look for those uh, especially embarrassing mannerisms that you repeat. Uh, one thing that I notice in my own prose that I have to carefully ration myself with is I'm uh, while I write, I'm very interested in where people's eyes are, where they're going, what they're looking, where they're seeing. And uh, I think that's entirely justifiable. It's obviously a big concern for me and obviously ties into the themes of what I'm doing. But you still got to, you know, if there's a spot where I can use a word other than I or see or look, uh, I make sure to do it. And uh, it does sort of help if you know that you have uh, particular mannerisms. Those are things that you want to address during the first draft stage because, you know, you got to pick your battles and, uh, you know, there's a time you're really, really going to want to use that a lot. So in the other areas where you don't absolutely need to, you want to uh, pull back. And speaking of pulling back, we've uh, clustered our words for a while on this subject and it's time to shift to our final topic. As we creak our way up the cobweb stairs to the offices of the consulting occultist, we look at the portrait of Madame Blavatsky glowering at us from the wall, and we begin to suspect that there's perhaps an electronic surveillance device back there uh, following us, and that maybe we're in a different hut or a conjoined hut. We'll get to that later, but uh, uh, Ken, at the request of listener Johnstone Metzger, you've been asked to uh, tell us about the life, and I assume the untimely demise of a Romanian scholar and occultist, 
Jan Kolyanu, and uh, Romanian listeners can uh, let me know how badly I mangled that. Ken, what is the uh, basic story on this uh, man who started his life in Romania and ended it rather dramatically in your own Chicago? The basic story about, and I and I'll give another opportunity for our Romanian listeners about uh, Ion Culianu is that uh, he is a you know sort of a ultimate American success story in a lot of ways, and sort of the tragedy of emigrate politics in another way. He was a uh, the son of a, a formerly influential person who was like a university administrator, university official in Yazi, which is a city in Romanian Moldavia, not other Moldavia. And the Romanians are now insisting that it's all Romanian Moldavia, but it was Romanian Moldavia even at the time he was born. We will brook no Balkan conflicts in our podcast. Right. He was, he was born under communist rule, did really, really well in school, um, was approached by the Securitate, which is the Romanian secret police, uh, the communist secret police, to join them, uh, said, uh, thanks but no thanks, or maybe said thanks just enough so that he got a permission to study in Italy, at which point he immediately defected. And he was put into a displaced persons camp, which you think is the sort of thing that we're done with, with World War II having been over for 35 years at that point. But no, um, they still have them, apparently, for Romanian defectors, at least. And they have lots of them in Australia, too. They, you know, yeah, they, I, I guess they have them wherever. They don't just say, ah, get a job at a hardware store, we'll talk to you later, like they do in America. Uh, so from this refugee camp in Italy, he basically becomes one of the leading scholars of uh, Renaissance magic, uh, in the world, and moves from there to to France, to the Netherlands, sort of always going around without a passport, with no, uh, you know, real way to get anywhere. He is um, uh, a protege and student of Mircea Eliade, who is sort of the great uh, grandfather of the study of myth and religion in the 20th century, uh, because Mircea Eliade was also Romanian. I think this guy probably read him in, in translate, or in, in, you know, back in Romania, maybe knew about his work. And then was able, thanks to Eliade's influence, to get to Chicago and be brought on as a visiting professor. And then eventually he was going to become a tenured professor once uh, U.S. immigration sort of dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's and got him citizenship and whatever. So he's in the uh, University of Chicago. He's a professor of the history of religion at the Divinity School. He's specializing in magic and mysticism in the occult. And on uh, May 21st, 1991, he was shot in the uh, men's restroom at Swift Hall, which is the Divinity School on the campus of the University of Chicago, during the annual Divinity School book sale, which meant that there was hundreds of people going in and out of the out of the Div School buying books from the Div School library. I was not at the Div School book sale at the time, but I was on campus. I was across uh, the quad at the uh, Chicago Maroon office doing something, and I heard either that day or very shortly, maybe the next day, that it had happened. And I want to just say, you know, right here, that it was an actual murder that actually killed an actual person on the University of Chicago campus, and it has not, I think, gone quite to the point where it is now purely uh, a historical moment that we can gamify with no concern for what happened. But if there is a person who would have appreciated that a historical event has both a, a ritual and mythic significance, as well as a human immediate significance, it would have been Professor Culiano. So I apologize to anyone who's listening and may have taken a class with him or, or knew him better than I did. I, you know, I didn't even know him to, to speak to on campus. I knew who he was. But, you know, we are, we are talking, when we talk about sort of the, the Huddy, the, the more Huttley aspect of this, we're, we're talking about it as, as he would have talked perhaps about another 
uh, ritual killing in a symbolic way, but not in a human way. And so, yes, he he would have known the psychogeography <laughs> of uh, what happened as well. Did the person who killed him right? There yes, was a, right. a not just a probably from what we suspect of who the killers were, someone just picking that for logistical reasons, but for cruel symbolic reasons because they were trying not just to kill a person, but to kill his uh, political ideas. Uh, initially, the uh, there was some suspicion, as there always is in the case of someone who has the occult anywhere near their name, that it was some sort of an occult killing. But Ken, I'm sure you can point to the much, much likelier suspect for someone who would, uh, with a single shot of a 25 caliber gun, stand up in the adjacent stall and expertly kill someone with a single shot to the back of the head. Yeah, the uh, what, what had happened in the interim is that the Romanian uh, revolution had taken place. And uh, the Ceausescus were dragged out of their palace and, and torn to pieces by the mob, as well they should have been. But Kulianu, like most people who are paying attention, recognized that inside this popular revolution was a coup d'etat, and that this coup d'etat had been pre-planned by elements of the Securitate, who were getting sick of the Ceausescus and realizing, as the winds of change were going across Eastern Europe, that it was kind of now or never for uh, communist secret policemen, and they were going to mount a coup against Ceausescu and then declare themselves, you know, sort of pro-Western good guys and hope that no one looked at their bank accounts too much. And, right. and it's certainly not the last time that a people <laughs> power movement has been used by a cloak for uh, meet the uh, new boss, same as the old boss. Right. And and so the uh, Culiano was, uh, after the revolution and even before the revolution, had been writing a lot of stuff in Romanian. Some of it was fiction about uh, the country of Jormania or the country of Tormania, where he would sort of predict what was going to happen, and then it did happen, because not because he was a magician, although he did teach a special course in predicting the future, but because he was a intelligent reader of Romanian politics. And so he, um, for example, predicted that one of the things that they would do is dig people up out of Potter's Field, out of the pauper's cemeteries, and then lie them around in the streets so that when the Western media came through, they would see all these dead people in the streets and say, oh my God, you were totally justified in whatever it was you just did. Right. And um, uh, he wrote that into a short story, and sure enough, that happened. In, in the West, we have conspiracy theories. In uh, the Eastern in, Bloc, they have conspiracies. They, they have actual conspiracies, yes. And so he um, uh, was very critical, obviously, of the Ceausescu's, as was everyone. Uh, worth anything. And he was critical of the Securitate. He called them, it was something like uh, uh, the monstrously inhuman and deeply profound, something like that, or monstrously stupid and deeply profound. He, he had a really great phrase for them. And he would give interviews to, to the Western media, to the European media, to Italians and the BBC, and they would like censor his interviews because he was too harsh. Um, uh, on, on the, on the Ceausescu's and on the Securitate. And then he was also harsh on this new movement that he saw rising up in Romania, which was sort of the worst of the Securitate and Ceausescu state holdovers combined with the ultra-nationalist anti-Semitic movements in the, uh, in, in what is called in, and further evidence of the paucity and poverty of our political dialogue, the far right in Romania, um, that they were sort of creating a, a common cause, and he sort of pointed at that, and so... Right, and these were the people who were the heirs to, or in some cases, the survivors of the Iron Guard, right, yeah. who in uh, World War II were the pro-Nazi local forces that prompted the German Nazis to look at them and go, 
Oh man, you guys are brutal. It it wasn't just the German Nazis looked at them. The German Nazis actually forcibly put down an Iron Guard coup d'état in Romania because the Antonescu government had risen on the back of the Iron Guard and was pro-German and was giving the Germans everything they wanted, mostly peace on that flank. And the Iron Guard wanted to overthrow the Antonescu government and started and and start killing more Jews faster. And the Nazis literally came in and put down the Iron Guard Rebellion. It was German soldiers, it was Wehrmacht troops that put down the Iron Guard Rebellion in 1941, early 1941. And so when the Nazis are killing you because you're too anti-Semitic and crazy, that is a warning sign. Do not do do not be that. Um, but yes, the Iron Guard, sort of the remnants of the Iron Guard um, that uh, had survived, I guess, three different purges, um, that were their, their political heirs in Romania, and especially their political heirs elsewhere in the West, had begun to sort of filter back into Romania and try and uh, move things in the direction that they, that they had seen their, um, uh, their mad poet uh, point them in the 30s. Right, and uh, as a sign that we are, in fact, in the tradecraft hut, um, at the time of Kulianu's uh, death, there was an emigre community in Chicago, including a heavy Iron Guard uh, emigre group, or at least, you know, a small fringe of people who were producing a paper who basically uh, celebrated his uh, his death in the uh, most bloodthirsty terms imaginable. Yes, in, in very much the old school 1930s way. And anyone who thinks that um, uh, we're back in the 1930s needs to go back and read stuff that was actually going on in the 1930s and, you know, take a step. But yes, there, there is, um, as there is in Chicago, there are a lot of Eastern European communities who are almost all of them immigrant communities that came over before uh, World War I. And then after World War I, they were, uh, and after World War II, they were very much expanded by the influx of, you know, refugees from communism, economic refugees from having your country blown up, and political refugees of one stripe or another. And as with every exile group and every refugee community, some of the guys are refugees for excellent reason. Um, in the sense that, you know, any right-thinking government is hunting them to the ends of the earth. And there are, or were in the 90s, I don't, they'd have to be very old now, there were a, a hardcore of iron guardists in uh, Chicago. Right, and that's that's why Culliano broke with Eliotti, who uh, said some things that uh, seemed to indicate an undue nostalgia for the Iron Guard. Well, uh, the main thing that he did was he exposed Culliano's I don't want to say membership because he was never a member, but his sort of sympathies with the Iron Guard back in the 30s. He, he's, he wrote and signed his name to other things that were... You mean uh, Eliotti's membership? Yeah, Eliotti's membership that, that um, were, that were um, uh, anti-Semitic and that were very sympathetic to the Iron Guard. And Eliotti, like many people who did stupid things in their, in their youth, uh, tried to live it down and uh, ignore it. And when Kulianu pointed that out, it was the, it was one of the reasons that uh, Eliotti and he began to separate politically. Although I should point out that Eliotti still made Kulianu his literary executor. So when he died, he still respected the scholarship and knew that Kulianu was the the best guy to to carry on Eliotti's work in mythology and the history of religions. They they were personally separate, but professionally. Eliade was still a, a great enough scholar not to hold a grudge about it. So speaking of the scholarship, have you uh, read any of Culliano's work? I have read one of Culliano's books, which is um, a book about uh, journeys to the other world after death. I've not read his uh, Gnostic history book, um, The Tree of Gnosis, but I've read Out of This World, Otherworldly Journeys from Gilgamesh to Einstein, which is it's a sort of book that when you read it and you, you say, this is a guy 
who is going to be a great scholar, and this is the book that he writes to anger all the other scholars in his field. It's it sort of <laughs> it takes a, a broad brush, a deliberately broad brush. It deliberately draws some unwarranted conclusions and some untenable connections, and it presents a big uh, a big scope. And then, in 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 the course of of one's you know academic career, one then spends the whole rest of one's life fighting rearguard actions against other scholars while advancing research in other areas. Uh, Jeffrey Parker famously did that with his book, The Military Revolution, and has literally been writing, you know, for, I guess, 50 years now, books about why you got my getting the real military revolution wronger than I got it in the first place. But this is the sort of book that I think that would have been for him, that that, that whole concept of the afterlife and, and other worlds being the same thing would have been something that he would have been fighting very productively, I, I want to emphasize, about uh, for years and years and years. I've not read Eros and Magic in the Renaissance um, just because of, uh, you know, there's only so much time in the day. That's his real masterwork. And as far as his history of the Gnostics, I'm sure that it's very good and very interesting, but I've read um, Yuri uh, Stoyanov's history of the, of the Gnostics, so I don't need to read another one because in terms of general history of the Gnostics, Stoyanov pretty much kicks it with The Other God, which is really, really good and has a lot of um, uh, Bulgarian and Russian sources in it that I suspect were not open to um, uh, uh, Kulyanu at the time. So they'll have to wait for the KWAS on uh, Gnosticism. Yes, I will have to wait until I have a um, uh, a business case for buying a history of Gnosticism. But Eros and Magic in the Renaissance is just me being lazy. I, I guarantee you that that's probably a... Uh, it's sort of the book that, that made his real reputation that, that you know, that uh, scholars were looking and saying, yeah, this is going to be the next, well, he, he would have been the next Jay-Z Smith, I guess, except that he died. And so he was never able to sort of push the study of magic and Eros the way that he wanted to. He he was interested in a lot of things because he was a, a genius and he was like 40 or something when he died. So he was, you know, very, very young in academic terms. Right. And uh, in case people are wondering why this is consulting occultists at all, he was described by the people who knew him as having prophetic abilities. He did uh, what sounds like cold readings of people and uh, made uh, guesses about their personal lives that they uh, found uncanny. And he was also a, a believer in uh, multiple worlds. So maybe we can hope that there are uh, way more other worlds where the Securitati uh, did not shoot him in the head. Yeah, and he was also um, he was a scholar of the occult and a scholar of mysticism and a philosopher in the Eliade sense. And so the, the the question of was he an occultist is really kind of down to your definition of an occultist. I mean, let's say that when I buy Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, it's going on my occult shelves, not my Renaissance shelves. Uh, the guy definitely was interested and in specializing in in the study of magic and. You call that an occultist right up until you can get tenure in it, and in some places you still can't get tenure in it. So that's why we're inside of that bubble, and it's the research of people like Kulianu that was that will and was hopefully going to push, you know, the legitimate study of history out over the occult, so that occultists can um, uh, I don't want to say gain respectability because that would spoil all my fun, but that you can at least also have respectable footnoted. Uh, studies of the occult as opposed to having to piece it together from a bunch of different cultural histories. So given the, the newness and the rawness of this story, is there anything we need to say about importing it into gaming and fiction other than you just need to change the names and it's an esoteric scenario? Yeah, I think that um, there, there certainly is that aspect to it. I think that one of the things that you can do with this sort of case is when you go back to, you know, first of all, make sure it was the bad guys that killed him. Never have a good guy killed by good guys. 
uh, in a game. It happens far too often in the real world to make it fun to play in fiction. But when you go into the Securitate, uh, and especially given their, their connections to the Iron Guard, which was easily the most religious of the fascist movements. Most of the fascist movements either paid lip service to religion or were actively hostile to them. Franco, you know, knew that he had to run Spain, so he was sort of hand-in-hand hand with the Spanish church. But the Iron Guard were really crazily doctrinaire believers. They were like Cathars. They, I mean, they were like seriously believing that they were a religious elite, a, a sort of a, a angelic body in the in the in the host of Romania, and so if you start looking at these kind of people, your Cathars and your Templars and your Holy Warrior type people, as the model for the secret core within the Securitate or the secret core within the the the, the group that that um, uh, that carried out the execution, that carried out the murder, I think you can start going at that. And I think that the notion, because we're for whatever reason, and obviously it's it's because of Michelet, but we probably don't have time to get into that now. We have this weird notion that the Cathars are good guys in our sort of generalized uh, ideology of, of magic nonsense. So, you know, you say, Tesla, he's a good guy. Edison, he's a bad guy. Cathars, they're good guys. But if you look at their actual, you know, sort of, you know, agenda, if you tried to carry it out, you'd be hunted down like dogs because it's all, you know, no connection to the physical world. Uh, women are inherently vessels of sin. Um, you can't have procreative sex. There's like a million things that they believe, and all of it is crazier than the last batch of stuff, ending with ritual bloodletting and suicide, and that's, you know, never a good sign. So I think that if you take a sort of a, read the, go back and reread all your Cathar books and think, how am I going to cast these as the worst people in the world? Then you find the worst people in the world who turn out to be people for whom Romanian fascism and Romanian communism are not yet brutal enough, and you say, okay, now I have sort of a mystical core, and what is their... You know, and you can just leave it on, on the mundane level, and you can say that they have, they're like this because they're crazy fanatics. Or you can say, nope, there is an actual demon somewhere in Romania that they have touched that has made them this. And you can say it's Zalmoxis, the Undying God. You can say it's Dracula. You can say it's any one of the, of the myriad of demons that uh, Kuliani would have written about in Eros and Magic. Um, and you can start saying, okay, now we can give this the act of, uh, a significant act in the same way that, you know, say the death of a prophet has a significant act, right? That if someone's killed the prophet, you know that they are in league with bad stuff that is happening that they don't want God to see. Well, on that note, I think we should uh, file a uh, segment on the Cathars as uh, a to-do item for the future and declare this podcast once again at a close. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Phoenix. Atlas Games. Open Metalcast. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Become the show's El Dorado by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Joining such intrepid patrons as Alexander Guerrero. And Alan Hood. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>